Sisters Podcast. Welcome to Emma's podcast. In today's podcast, we are bringing back somebody that I dearly love. Uh, we had one absolutely phenomenal um, podcast episode, and I think Lincoln, LinkedIn went a little wild on, on this one, which was awesome, actually. It was a very good thing. Uh, Jessica Hey, what's is for reminder for people who have not listened to the first episode, and you should, is the co-founder of Mod City in Chicago. And Mod City is a holistic sales operation agency helping companies scale their revenues organizations strategically and responsibly. Yes. Hi, Jessica. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Excited to be here. Good, good, good. So yeah. I read something interesting and I would like you to uh, elaborate yes. um, and it's under your profile in LinkedIn and is sustainable revenue evangelist. Yes. Yes. So could you elaborate on that for me? Yeah, please? I can. So Mud City, um, our mission is to help, uh, is to help our, our clients grow sustainably. Um, and when we sort of talk about sustainable revenue, we mean revenue that is as good for employees as it is for the company. Um, and there is, uh, I think, been a pervasive growth at any cost mindset um, in, in the startup ecosystem that I, I don't think has always been great for people. Um, and so we believe that that doesn't have to be the story of growth. Um, so we talk a lot about sustainable revenue. We talk about what it is. Um, we talk about what it isn't. Um, but you know, for us, sustainable revenue is revenue that is anchored in the truth of your market. Um, historically, a lot of revenue plans are built top down. Board tells you the number that you hit and you sort of retro engineer yourself back um, into quotas or back into growth growth plans, um, irrespective of your addressable market or irrespective of sort of the bottom up possibilities. Um, and it's that single mistake that causes a lot of pain for people. Um, it creates burnout. It creates really terrible leadership decisions that are, you know, can sometimes be viewed as somewhat unethical um, or uh, irresponsible. It causes a lot of, we talked about this a little bit in our last podcast, a lot of employee trauma 
um, in terms of uh, being asked to hit numbers that were never anchored in reality, being told that they're possible when you look around, nobody's hitting them. Why, why are, you know, why are we sort of upholding <clears throat> narratives that yeah. this were still possible when it's showing itself to not be possible? Um, why are we not adjusting our strategies? Um, things of that nature. And so we sort of have a set criteria of things that to us, um, tell us you are running a sustainable revenue organization. Um, and we use that as a guiding light for all of our engagements and have to sort of take a stance on how we help companies grow um, because there are certain ways that we won't help companies grow. Um, and we kind of force ourselves to have an opinion on that. That's... That's very good, actually. That's I love that. I love the fact that you're able to communicate with uh, clients and let them understand those unrealistic expectations. And how do you shift them from unrealistic expectation to realistic expectation? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Yeah, that's a good question. I One of the very first things that we do, so for those of you who are like, what is Mud City? For context, we are a sales and revenue operations agency. We specifically help emerging technology companies think seed to about series C is is where we typically play. Usually our companies have a product-led founder um, or product-led CEO who doesn't exactly know how they should take their funds and sort of invest in a revenue engine. Um, And so a lot of the advice that they're getting is typically from VCs and boards um, who don't spend a lot of time in sort of bottom up analysis. Um, And so we kind of come in and we usually as one of the first things that we do with companies as we are helping them stand up their demand generation engines is we are helping them construct their revenue targets in their, their revenue plans. So, hey, you know, what is the top line target that we're trying to hit? What do AE quotas need to look like? What demand generation targets do we need to see? What is a healthy amount of breakage for performance, for attrition, for capacity? Um, and what can our market bear? Um, so a lot of times we see companies who try to hire more reps than they actually have accounts to give, right? They don't have a strong command over their addressable market. They don't actually understand how um, how much market there is to win um, and overhire, right? Um, that's if you've been kind of paying attention to tech at all, um, there's been just a mass wave of layoffs. Um, and what we're seeing is a lot of that comes from really unsustainable planning. So a lot of sort of the the commotion of the uh, of the tech ecosystem right now um, is that they were operating on plans that were unsustainable from the jump. And it's not at all surprising that uh, when we sort of saw a market downturn, that those unsustainable plans were the first thing to crumble. Um, And I think our question is at Mud City, like how did that plan get signed off on to begin with, right? Like we should always be sort of versioning plans for the best case scenario, a moderate scenario and a worst case scenario and giving ourselves sort of optionality. And we should never just be leading with the hiring plan for the best case scenario irregardless of sort of how top line is performing, right? So like we just see these really big silos in terms of how these functions are operating. And we've seen all of that kind of come to a screeching halt in the last few months with a load of layoffs um, that not always, right? I don't want to be sort of too 
mm-hmm. don't want to paint with too wide a, a brush here, but yeah. a lot of them could have been avoided um, by more sustainable revenue planning in, in, in my opinion. Okay. Wow. That's, we're starting very strong and deep right now into the conversation. (laughs) But I think it's the key because that's, uh, you know, a lot of people don't, um, don't realize they have expectation because they're expecting or somebody who's crunching numbers is giving them a a number to hit to be profitable. And at the end of the day, it's kind of double-edged sword because uh, some of the revenue might be easy to do, but maybe at the beginning, it's not. Maybe it's going to take a few months before they can even hit some of the targets. And uh, it takes time to, I believe, get some of those customers on board. It's not like they're going to be signing in 15 minutes and said, oh, we're going with you. It's going to take some time, negotiation, understanding before they said, okay, you can deliver the project for us. That's fine. We're signing it. Um, so it takes a little bit more negotiation as well. It could take a couple of weeks or a couple of months just to get something. Yeah. And I think that's actually a big component of the revenue planning that we do, where we sort of say, okay, great. You want to close this amount of revenue, but how long does it take you to win this revenue? So if you were to invest in a resource that generated X amount of pipeline today, it's still going to be six months potentially before you even experience that revenue and can actually realize it, right? So there's sort of all of these compounding factors of how revenue organizations get built and they don't often get portrayed in a single operating plan for the revenue organization. So you sort of exist in the marketing plan or you exist in the sales plan or you exist in sort of the account management plan rather than looking at sort of how all of these components are sort of stacking up your revenue month over month so that you can figure out what are you resourcing? What are you funding in each month? Um, and and it's, you know, it's very understandable, right? To sort of say, okay, well, the board has asked me to hit this target. What, what can I do, you know, and to just kind of back that out. I completely understand why um, that would sort of be the first thought. Mm-hmm. But what our kind of whole whole methodology as a company is that you can't exist on a top-down plan. Um, you have to have a top-down, bottoms-up methodology that keeps your top-down plan in check with reality and what is actually possible um, and sets the correct expectations for everybody in terms of when anything can truly be realized based on what it's going to take for you to go get it. Be that an outbound meeting or standing up an inbound channel or any of the things that you might do to go get revenue, they're all going to take time. Um, and you also have to ask, great, you know, what percentage of my revenue do I want that channel to put up? How much should I actually be investing in it based on how quickly it's going to stand itself up? And we find ourselves just really guiding these conversations constantly and sort of forcing disparate business partners to sort of have these conversations and agree on a plan that can act as a single source of truth as we move forward. And great, if the assumptions break and it changes, and by all means, we'll keep coming back to it and adjusting it. But at least we started from from the same place with the same vision and the same plan um, and can have a dialogue that's productive versus combative mm-hmm. and make decisions rooted in reality um, that are structured around doing right by people. So like one of the terminal metrics that we look for is like, can, can your, can your reps exceed quota at least 80% of the time? If they can't, 
then your plan is bunk. <laughs> it's just like, it's just, it's, it's not a good plan for people, right? You're yeah. going to see really high turnover. You're going to see your reps leave. You're going to be replacing them all the time. You're never going to see traction. You're never going to generate expertise. Um, and so like, it's the short-term versus the long-term. Um, and it's funny what happens when you can build a plan and ask those questions up front versus kind of having to learn the hard way as you go. And looking at the reps, we're going to go a little bit on the sales side as well. You need to provide, I will say, the foundation because uh, one thing that I learned uh, as a business coach is you need to speak the same language. So you need to have a script where people should be following to, to speak with prospect. Do mm -hmm. you see this uh, when you go and interact with client, not the current one you have, but the prospect one? Do you see yeah. this already in place or it is not in place or kind of in place, but we're not so sure or everybody do their own freestyle? So with this, with the stage of company that we typically work with, that's rarely in place. So we're usually standing that up with them for the first time. Um, and you're exactly right. There needs... And, and I'll say there needs, there needs to be that script, but it also can't, it needs to be built for your customer, not for you. Yes. Yes. So one of the, one of the biggest points of coaching that we often, you know, sort of work with companies on is your customer doesn't really care about your features and your functionality or, or what platform your technology is built on or any of those things. They don't care. They only care that it can solve their problem. But what a lot of companies aren't are experts in their customers' problems, which is kind of baffling um, because in order to succeed, you look at the best companies, they have, have made it their top priority to become obsessed with their customers' problems. So we often have to come in and rewrite everything that they've written, that they've kind of built to date and sort of say, none of this matters. They don't care about this. They don't care about this. What is happening in your customer's life when they're experiencing the frustration of the problem that you solve? What's happening before it? What's happening during it? What's happening after it? And then attaching all of our messaging to those moments because they're real frustrations that, that maybe when we reach out, they're literally experiencing and like viscerally responding to when our email or our phone call reaches them. Um, and I think that is very, it sounds very simple. It's a very hard thing to do. Um, and I think companies don't start soon enough um, in just becoming really obsessed with the problem that they're solving um, and obsessed with all the different ways that their customer could solve it. Um, because if that is true, then your messaging will be compelling. And I actually think it's very funny. B2C brands tend to be a lot better at this than B2B brands. Um, and so we're it's very interesting that that we kind of have to keep pushing B2B brands to go further there. Um, where, you know, I think the modern B2C brand is is pretty far along in understanding, you know, the the customer journey, the problems they experience, um, and mapping that out at just like an obsessive uh level. Um, and I think that's sort of the next challenge for B2B brands is to be equally customer obsessed. Yeah, because the problem is is when you 
and I'm talking for new prospect, not the current client, because after that, when you talk with your current client, you can figure it out what's going on, what does their problem is and everything else. But I'm talking about the brand new one. When you do a cold call or you do a drip campaign emails, how do you explain to uh, the reps uh, or how the reps can penetrate the company or the converse, get the conversation with the next level person that can they can talk to to get to, you know, explain yeah. what are their pain point because I think the more challenging part of it is picking. Well, you pick up the phone, but you got the um, the first line, which is generally the receptionist who will yeah. filter everything. So how do you pass by that, or how can you get to the next level? Because if you don't have the full information, you just have a phone number, and you don't know uh, who you're supposed to be talking to, or you know it's maybe marketing, maybe it's somebody else's operation, whomever it is. How do you pass that first barrier when you're calling? Because you know you always have a rejection coming up. It's very irritating, annoying yeah. when you have to, yeah. you're facing the wall. It's like, good golly, yeah. I want you to talk to the right person. Then get the right message for that person to lead you past to the other one. And being able to start a conversation without selling, because the problem that I see is if you sell things out of the, the gate, you're going to fail miserably because you need to engage into a conversation. So how do you connect with the people? So first, how do you pass those gates? Yeah. That first person to be able to the yeah. next person. Well, That's I, I think challenging. It's, it's very interesting because I do think that most companies, when they're kind of starting to figure out how to, how to go have conversations with their market, they almost, oh, they almost over-engineer for the pitch or they over-engineer for the conversation itself. And they completely forget about all of the strategy that gets them to that conversation to begin with. And that is why we are a revenue operations and sales methodology company, because you don't have conversations without incredible data and incredible targeting. And most companies aren't thinking about that. So most companies are not sort of saying, what are the 300, 300 to 350 accounts that are best suited for my message right now? They're sort of saying, well, wait, our TAM is X amount of thousands of companies. Just go talk to all of them. Terrible idea. You're mm -hmm. never going to be specific enough. You're never going to be tailored enough to, to the end customer or to the prospect that you're trying to reach if you take that approach. So what we really work on is helping companies build that initial list of 300 to 350 accounts who are the best folks to speak to at any given moment and who share a certain set of demographic or firmographic criteria that make them most resonant for the message right now. And that takes a lot of time. And that is sort of what I, I talk about it as being sort of like the strategic foundation of everything that we do. And most companies just skip it. And they say, well, we hired a BDR. We have somebody cold calling. We're doing outbound what you're doing is random calls and that will never work anymore. Um, the, the days of that being successful are sort of behind us. The only means to sort of 
setting a meeting or having a great conversation is through intense personalization right now. And you can't have personalization without focus. So like the very first thing that we help companies do is sort of create these almost like micro campaigns around value propositions. But what are the sort of 300, 350 accounts that are going to be most resonant to this value proposition? Sometimes that's persona based. So are we looking for someone in marketing? But oftentimes there's more components to that. Well, what let's assume we're talking to someone in marketing, right? Mm -hmm. What marketing automation system are they using? Okay, well, we're only going to target people who are using Marketo because we know that Marketo has XYZ functionalities that are like really poor. I'm just kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. As I go, that yeah. are really poor <laughs> that our that our solution specifically targets. So when we create that message, we specifically want to say, hey, I noticed you were using Marketo. I'm curious if you're experiencing this. That's not sales. That is hey, I am an expert and I understand your problem. And if you can't sort of construct your messaging to teach, then you can't win. Um, mm -hmm. And you won't be heard and you won't cut through. Um, and that is honestly where we spend a lot of our time. Okay. That makes a little bit more sense because that's and what I'm trying the to figure Right. Then there's everything else. Yes. Because, yeah. you know, um, do cold call is one thing. Picking up and focusing on a specific area is another thing as well. Yeah. So people have to target. I like what you're saying in, in regards of targeting specific industries or companies, because like you said, cold calling are becoming harder uh, because you have to pass that for get, first gate. So again, if you don't have information, if you don't know, then it makes it harder to have a conversation with them. So there is more data intelligence going behind it which yeah. means this needs to be pulled before the list can be done. So we know the pain point. Yeah. And I think too, you, I, I'm not sure how many times I say this in a day. I think my team is really sick of me saying it, but I am constantly telling companies that they have to invest in their proprietary data set as early as they possibly can. So what are the pieces of, of information you have to know about your customers to take the perfect message to their doorstep? You know, if, if you are heavily reliant on knowing X system that they're currently using, um, then you have to figure out how you're going to, how you're going to know that, right? There's yeah. so many data sources that you can use today that will, that will sort of help you. But I think there's really cool ways that you can leverage your sales team to be getting you information about your customers into your CRMs um, that is going to tighten up your messaging and get stronger. And we spend a lot of time just helping our companies map out what proprietary data that they need to have um, so that their messaging in the future, maybe not even the messaging we're using today, but their future messaging can be even better than what we're doing without it. Um, and so sometimes that looks like running custom data projects for them, or sometimes that looks like our BDR is asking very specific questions so that we're getting information on what accounts are doing or what, what you know, what companies are currently leveraging instead of X solution, right? So uh -huh. there's a lot of, I think that's a deeply underrated um, com competitive differentiator for companies that I don't think that they're running at as aggressively as they could be um, that will really set them apart because your messaging can just be so strong when you can sort of reflect on what they're doing and what they're probably experiencing versus just coming in with a generic value proposition, um, it, it's just not going to work as nicely. Okay. That's what I thought. So I just wanted you to clarify this because I see it happening and I'm questioning well, because there should it. be, 
Well, yeah, and not only this, but you need to have a, your target market. And if you're shooting for everybody around the block, that makes it very, very hard to be able to have a first initial contact. Uh, even via email, when you do your uh, drip campaign, you could have a great one, but you need the pain point. I do know most people yeah. right now are looking for uh, more clients, more customers yeah. and stuff like that to coming in their store and e-commerce and stuff like that. That's one pain point, but there is others as well maybe they don't have such a robust uh website maybe they need to have more of a footprint where they live and they don't know how to do it they're spending thousands of dollars on like facebook ad or other ad and it doesn't go anywhere yeah, so that's exactly. another thing yeah that's another thing well, too it's it's also okay. like figuring out who's going to resonate with what, right? So yes. we spend a lot of times help a lot of time helping our customers understand where these different campaigns will actually work. So things like paid and you know Facebook, like you were mentioning, or LinkedIn, or you know wherever you're doing that, mm-hmm. they they're really great, sort of on on your potentially less valuable customers um, on sort of like the outer ring of, um, of your addressable market that isn't probably as, uh, as like squarely in your ICP or isn't sort of like the tippy top of your ICP, um, where, where you need to sort of focus on putting more resources is in your hardest to reach addressable customers, right? Like, think of if you were thinking about like a B2B organization, it's, you know, this is where your fortune 100s live or your fortune 250s mm-hmm. live, you know, paid and demand are probably going to do really well um, in middle market or SMB, right? Because there's so much more of them um, mm-hmm. and they're slightly easier to reach, right? They're smaller teams are looking for help more often. You know, they're, as you, as you get into the inner circle, those accounts become more difficult to penetrate. So that's where you need to put incremental spend, incremental attention, because you can recover that um, based on the quality of that deal, the size of that deal. So there's like a lot of conversation you have to have about your addressable market and sort of where you place um, your your resources. And, and that's another component of what we help customers with too, because it's not always straightforward. Um, and there's a lot of companies, we specifically work with outbound, but there's a lot of companies who actually Outbound wouldn't be great for them, right? Because they have deal sizes that are around 8,000 to 10,000 a year. They're probably not going to recover um, the, the expense of an outbound channel because it's quite expensive. So we would never recommend they get one. We would say, hey, you need to go optimize self-service. You need to go optimize um, you know, your inbound channels or your marketing campaigns um, because you just don't have the deal size to sort of run this kind of campaign. Those are, those are all the decisions that, you know, companies have to make. Absolutely. That's why it's, it's nice to have you to clarify this because if you're looking only at numbers and you want to mark your, you hit the numbers, then you're going to have to have the right tools for the people to be able to do that. And, uh, often you can say, people can say, well, you know, it's reachable. Yes, it's reachable, but it might take some time to close them. Maybe you can you have maybe five or six prospects down the pipeline, but you cannot push those prospects to sign it and say, oh, by next week you need to sign the deal because that would be a deterrent. And it's like, no, I don't think so. They're going to walk away. So you yeah. have to, to, to make sure that everything in the pipeline is moving forward, but you move forward at a specific speed, yes. not our own expectation. And not at the accountant expectation, but at the speed it's supposed to be. So it makes it a a little bit more challenging as well. Yeah. I also think, and this this might be a hard one for founders to hear because you never, 
you never want to criticize your baby or your product or the thing that you've built, but you have to be aware of what your product is good at and what it's not good at and where it sits in the market. So there's a lot of companies who are, you know, really vying to go win the million dollar enterprise deals who just don't have a product that's ready to compete. And so you also have to say, why am I, why am I marketing to companies I know I can't win? Like, why am I trying to pull people off of Salesforce when I don't have a superior CRM? Uh-huh. So like, like you have to be honest about where you sit. And then you have to actually say, well, what is people will tell me all the time when my total addressable market is X and I'll actually say, well, but your sales addressable market is Y because your product doesn't have X, Y, Z capabilities to go compete with the big players. So this entire segment of the market that you think is part of your addressable market, it's not, not until you go build X product into your, into your um, roadmap. Um, And that is a hard conversation to have um, where you, again, are sort of forcing companies to look look through the lens as a customer, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine that I have X, Y, Z options available to me. Why as an enterprise would I go with your solution that doesn't have the integration capabilities that I need that I already have? Mm-hmm. You, you don't have a strong case to unseat my incumbent, right? And, you, and like, these are the conversations that you really have to have where it's like, I love that you told this TAM story to your board um, when they, or your VCs, when you were getting funding. It doesn't pencil um, in the field. And this is this is what's really real. And I think that there's a lot of those conversations that we end up having when we construct revenue plans um, that are a little bit more realistic to to the market that that companies' products play in, and we we help them get a lot of those insights back from the field. That is great. That is good to hear as well. But if your product is as good as the other one, the problem is how do you get them in the door as well? Because now you know if you don't have the right product or the product is not good enough, well. Yeah, you need to go back to the drawing board. But let's say your product is equal or superior to what's already out there. How do you make yourself more known and for people to really have an opportunity to just say, oh, that sounds interesting. I'm interested to that new product. They do good things, but you know, people don't want to change what they got or it really has to be that good. So how do you approach that version of it? So it depends. We always have, um, you know, when we're building our playbooks with with clients, we always kind of think about the competitive landscape as um, are we are we enhancing or are we replacing? Um, because I think there are some point solutions, right, where you are just going to be competing for the same line item of budget, and you need to sort of win that outright. Yes. But then there's, you know, very highly technical solutions where, you know, within the product itself, you may be within like six or seven business lines where, you know, your initial goal is just to win one business line and then to slowly unseat the others as you sort of, uh, you sort of move through your relationship. So there's kind of like replace motion, which is I am offsetting X competitor or there's land and expand, whereas I am offsetting one vertical of competitor and I'll just sort of like continue to eat into, um, into their, their contract year over year as we, as we win their hearts and minds. But I think those are the questions you have to have as well is how, how does this, how do decisions get made? How does a customer make decisions about this product? Um, Is it something where they'll peel off a feature and give it to you for, for a proof of concept or a pilot, or is it something where they're just, they're just going to outright make a decision. um, And and it is a head to head battle with your competitors. And I think those kind of things that you need to learn from your customers, you need to ask your customers, how do they, how do they make these decisions? 
especially when you're looking at some of the uh, that's such an interesting conversation we're having right now i'm just loving it <laughs> so um if you're not like you're talking because you, you're talking about um startup companies and stuff like so when what advice do you have to give to uh younger companies that go head and head with very established companies, then they're trying to gain some market share because you know if you get the best product in the world, well, some people like to stay with a company that is more known because they've been there forever. How do you do that? How do you approach that? Yeah, so you have to get really good at understanding who's going to be a great customer for you, especially when you're early. Um, you want, if you are early and you are trying to like unseat an incumbent, you have to have your first few customers really have to be partners. They have to be in a position to sort of open, open everything wide and sort of say, this is the exact problem I was experiencing with this other vendor and sort of allow you the opportunity to workshop that with them. There are companies and there are personas specifically of decision makers who want to take that kind of partnership on to build something that they imagine. So again, it's figuring out who are those companies who are doing innovative things, who are taking risks with vendors and who are sort of reimagining their functions. It's it's not going to be, you're not going to see that kind of, kind of thing happen at in sort of like rigid verticals or in, with uh, with rigid late late adopting um, verticals, uh, and you know there's you know like public sector is is historically late adopting. Um, you know, like you can kind of go through and sort of see what are the types of verticals that that are less likely to kind of clamor onto technology to help them innovate. It's like you got to go to those highly innovative sectors. Um, and make your case. Hey, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know that you're X Y you're using X Y Z X Y Z vendor, and they're probably falling short on X X Y Z functionality. We aren't all the way there yet, but we love to partner with you, and you've got to be willing to to come in a lot lower than the incumbent and like take some risks with them. Um, and then as you start to generate the case studies, as you start to generate the success stories, um, as you start to see repeatable target market establishing, then you just go find more of those people. Um, but again, it's about just maniacal emphasis on understanding your ideal customer profile. Um, and if we're talking earlier stage companies than that, a, a lot of collaboration with who you think might be your ICP um, and just sitting down and trying to understand where their processes are breaking and understanding their current problems. Um, because the reality is, I think I heard the stat, I can't remember from who that said like the first four to five customers that a, that a company will bring on are not within their ICP. They just mm -hmm. haven't learned it yet. So it's yep. like be comfortable being uncomfortable, be comfortable not knowing um, yep. in, until you know. That's a, that's a challenge on its own. That's yeah, very challenging, but I love the conversation we're having today because it's highlighting a little bit more of the expectation and how to win your clients, your customer, your market share, how to really reassess where you need to be with your product, because you can have a product that can go to every single market, but I think you need to stay, to start with one specific market in order to do oh, you get have it to. right. Yeah, you really have to. And 
we, we go so like, we take two value propositions to market at a time, value propositions, messaging campaigns, you, you value, you know, like however you want to kind of talk about that will only take two to market at a time. And we're AB testing those until we figure out, okay, which is, which is the, the message that's most resonant. And then we're sort of workshopping the next one to figure out like how we can make it better. But if you, imagine that we were trying to do that across 10 campaigns simultaneously. It's like you, you would just be diluting the efficacy of understanding what is resonating. So you have to just go slow to go fast and be very intentional about what am I trying to test and what is the feedback that I'm getting back? And what is that telling me about where I go next? Um, it's like, we always say it's scientific method in action. Um, and, that we all understand it when we're doing things with product or we all understand it, you know, when the engineering team is talking about it, but when the revenue team wants to sort of take that same rigor of experimentation, it's too slow or it's not happening fast enough, or we should be, we should, we should be more agile. We should be changing it. And like, you really do have to commit to, we're not going to change our approach until we have 350 people who've given us feedback or whatever it is. Right. Because you don't have a sample size that's actually indicative of what is true about your market, right? And I think people don't actually take time to think about messaging with the same rigor that they would think about a marketing campaign or they would think about, you know, any other change management that's happening within your organization. Yes, I totally agree with you. That's how that's why it's such a powerful conversation for today. And this is perfect for what I needed today, actually. <laughs> <laughs> because uh um, you know, if you like you said, the cold call, uh, you have to target your market. You cannot just pick up the phone. You can pick up the phone, but you're gonna get a rejection because you don't know what their pain point is, you don't yeah. know who they are, you don't know who to access it either, which yeah. makes it a little bit more cumbersome. So it needs to have some research in the background as well, unless you're knocking the door of the businesses and if you have the time to do that that's awesome you know weather yeah. is nice as long as it's not minus 30 degrees you're okay yeah. <laughs> you can yeah. walk outside but it takes time it does it takes time and it takes time and you're kind of taking people will also say well you know you've had x amount of conversations you know why haven't we you know close a deal or why haven't we you know insert expectation of outcome here right well because you're contacts are going on a journey of becoming aware of you mm-hmm. and then they're sort of aware of you but they have to experience their problem while they're aware with you and then they're going to need to go do some research and then they're going to have to go you know it's like we have to sort of be there every step of the way yep. and i don't think historically companies really think about that contact life cycle journey that they're going to take in their becoming aware of you, especially early stage companies who don't have sort of like the brand engine that more established companies do. It's like, you got to build that and you're going to build that slowly through your outreach and through your follow-up and through your commitment to, to putting great content in front of them and your commitment to continuing to talk to them. Even if they've told you, no, you kind of come back and you continue to try to re-educate them. Um, you really do have to create a a challenge to their current status quo. Um, And if companies aren't sort of bringing anything provocative to their messaging, if they're not bringing any sort of unique point of view on the problem, they can't win. Um, It's just they, your it's always easier for a company or a buyer to do nothing than it is to engage in change. 
And if you've given them no meaningful reason to aspire to change, you cannot win. Yes. See, <laughs> listening to you and you're so true. This is so true. But the messaging needs to be there. The um, the accountability to have the messaging and understanding the buyer's journey as well. Like you said, and I'm glad you emphasize on the touch point with the prospect because a lot of people are like, well, you talked to them last week. Why don't you close them? Well, they are not get they are not there yet. They are close to, but they are not there yet because you cannot push somebody to to buy your product. Otherwise, you know, if people do that, then you hang up the phone and say, I don't want to go to those people. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested. Yeah. But it has to be on the journey of the prospect. So you can have, I said, 10, 20 in a pipeline. If you didn't close them today, maybe at the end of the week, you might not close one, but probably next yeah. week you will. So it yeah. all depends on when it's kind of who you are. Architecting, you know, that demand funnel, right? So you know, are you, what is your close rate? Are you closing, you know, at 10%? If you have, you know, 10 opportunities, you're closing them 10% of the, you know, like whatever that is. And then it's sort of constructing the expectations based on that, right? Okay, well, great. If you're closing at 10%, then we need to generate X amount of opportunities for you to actually win 10% of them. And for that 10% to be aligned with your target. It's like, it is, I always say this about revenue is like, it's, it's largely solved. Like, people have been talking about inputs and outputs and constructing the revenue engine. And, um, you know, basically since I think the, the first, the first two books that I remember really blew it open for me were Jason Lemkin's predictable revenue. And then Trish Pertuzzi had, um, a book about, um, about SDRs. Um, so the outbound, uh, sales development playbook and those two books, they cracked it wide open in terms of, building and constructing your inputs to the outputs you need as a business to survive. And it's like, it's solved. It's just a matter of sitting down and sort of constructing that for yourself. Mm -hmm. like a lot of these people, it's the same as anything. I think where it's like, well, this framework exists, but frameworks are really tough to personalize to your business. Um, largely because people don't take the time to sort of really ask the hard questions, um, or they don't have the data inputs to sort of serve as baseline assumptions. Um, and I think that's where experts can be helpful. It's like, until, you know, or until you've, you've structured your systems to be able to give you these, these outputs, here are some really conservative baselines that you can build a, a great business around. Um, like there is a place to start and somebody has done it and, um, in many ways, it's it's not rocket science. It's excellence and execution, um, and and that is sort of the the bridge that we usually have to take companies over. Yes, and I totally understand that. But the other thing too, I believe that if you provide the right information to your sales team to do the the calls or tailored uh, for the marketing to do the emails, the the marketing uh, drip campaign. If they know the pain point, then it's already half of the battle done. Because when you approach those prospects, you already know what is one of their biggest issues. There is more probably to talk to, but there is at least one topic that you can relate with them and you can connect. Because for me, a cold call is not that easy to do. I don't like cold call personally because it's a royal pain and you get the rejection. You have to I swallow love, to it. and cold call. Okay, well... <laughs> <laughs> My entire business is built on cold calls. So we, we love them over here, but I hear you. 
But you have a technique, don't you have a technique to approach oh, yeah. them or you just go by your hands in your pocket and say, hey, how are you doing today? I just no, want we to have, you. We have a 68-page document that we build for every single company that says exactly how to execute a great cold call, um, exactly how to execute great outbound uh, emails. Um, and I, I think you're exactly right. Like it's ensuring that everyone in your organization adopts the same approach. Yeah. I also like, I can't get over the amount of companies who do outreach who are apologetic about it. If you, you have to believe in your solution more than everybody else in the amount of like apologies and outreach that I see, or like, sorry to be a pest or, you know, apologies for following up. It's like, well, do you believe you can help? Like you have to bring this confidence to the market that really like it, we always talk about it and the, and the challenger sale really talks about prescription and teaching, teaching your prospects that there's a better way and, and suggesting it for them. Um, I think we put a lot of hard work on the plates of our buyers a lot of the time to sort of figure out what next step they're going to take instead of suggesting next steps for them. Most people are pretty open to learn. Like yes. most people are pretty open to giving you 15 minutes to walk away with an insight that they didn't have. Mm -hmm. But what is the insight you're providing? Exactly. And that's the most biggest, companies don't know. <laughs> and that's the hard well, this is what the hardest part is, I believe, in the call call. It's the what do you give it to them? Because you can say hello, you can shoot the breathe as much as you want, but that's not what you're there for. And mm -hmm. what message can you convey? So that will get you to the next person, to the to the deal, actually, that gets you yeah. to the buyer's journey. And I think that's the biggest hurdle at this point is that script, the first one, which is like, how do we first tell line. this? How yeah. do we, you know, because if you got a good one and it's a winning one, then I have no problem. I will call everybody and anybody yeah. I know wrong. Yeah. But the problem is, what do you say in your first call? What is yeah. the speech that's going to really get the traction and get you where you need to be? Yeah. So we kind of follow the same framework every single time to get to what we call uh, a why buy question. So that is sort of our. Oh, okay. Our, the typical one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for us, we always start with what we call a customer impact equation, which is what is the customer's problem? What is the impact of the customer's problem? What is your proposed solution? And what is the impact of your proposed solution? Which is just a value proposition framework. And ever there's so many takes on value propositions and making them these overly engineered, highly complex things. It's like four quadrants, mm -hmm. problem, impact, solution, impact, period. That's like all, that's, that is a complete value sentence, right? So once we figure that out with companies, we will then take that and we'll turn it into a question that gets, that sort of opens up a great dialogue that is non-salesy to learn, to teach, mm -hmm. right? So I think a lot of people are okay at sort of under, maybe they're okay at getting the customer impact equation completed. What they don't know is how to transition that into yes. to start a conversation without just talking about products, features, functionalities, specs, pricing, right? Yeah. So for us, it is, you know, asking a very specific question, always open-ended about 
how that prospect is experiencing the problem that you've just identified. And we call them why buy questions. And we yeah. construct entire multi-touch campaigns around these why buy questions. A, because they're really easy for, for sales to execute. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of framework and way for them to anchor themselves in conversations that is repeatable. You can mm-hmm. kind of release new messaging mm-hmm. on this framework all the time. You can, can create really awesome messaging off of them. And then you can measure them because in your CRMs, you can sort of say, I scheduled this meeting on this why buy. Um, and so you can sort of see how all of the conversations and all of the pipeline that you're generating ties back to what you initially talked to them about. And you can validate that that is in fact actually a problem for your customers. Um, And so there's sort of this entire sort of flywheel that we stand up where we're helping companies get a really clean point of view on the questions that they ask to start great conversations. Okay. That's that's answering my questions. (laughs) It's true because... If you don't know, you go fishing, but if you know, then you can approach them and have the solution already of what you can do to improve where they are without putting out an entire, um, what do you say, presentation or anything yeah. like that. That is exactly. like, I don't like this kind of thing. That happened to me actually last week. Somebody that I was talking to, wasn't expecting to see a presentation, just pull out the presentation. I'm like, oh no, you did not. All right, I'm not here to sell anything. You're not supposed to sell me anything. I'm just supposed to know what you're doing, not selling me something. Yeah. And I had to stop it. And he wanted to, you had two more slides. I'm like, no, I'm done. I'm like, I was done. Yeah. I'm like, no, I got to go somewhere else right now for yeah. you, which I did. But he yeah. wanted to schedule another uh, meeting with me. And I said, no, thank you. I think I understood what you're doing. I said, but, but I'm like, no, no, we're good. I get yeah. the message. Yeah. But this is the kind of things that most people don't want. They want something that is more organic and it's a true connection, not something yeah. that you came up with a presentation and just start to read your presentation, which disconnects you with your audience, with your prospect. A hundred percent. And I, I think that there's so much data now that if you can't do the little bit of due diligence that is required to bring a person like that level of personalization to the prospect, then you haven't earned the time, right? So like each of our why buys sort of comes with, it takes X pieces of prospecting or X pieces of information to sort of pull off this message. Um, and we teach reps where to find them. We teach them where to go to kind of do this research so that they are armed with the data that they need to be personalized when they go in and have these conversations. But it's like, there's case studies on all of your competitors' websites. You literally know at least 30 people that you that are working with your competitors today. You know, there's G2, there's Captera, there's reviews being left constantly about technologies, about what technologies are great at, about what they're not great at. There's glass door reviews that are employees reviewing companies on what they're great at, what they're not great at. If if you aren't strategically using that data to your advantage, you also can't win. You have all these avenues to you to be incredibly personalized. And most companies are still just leading with the generic value proposition. Um, and then they're like, well, you know, outbound sales just doesn't work. It's like, well, no, you, you didn't, you never implemented it. 
you know, you probably I don't know yeah, how you, to. you continue to use incredibly generic messaging and you expected really incredible results. Anybody will tell you generic messaging doesn't give you incredible results, but you don't have the infrastructure or the point of view to be getting, um, you know, the performance that personalized messaging gives you. Um, and so that's sort of where we spend a lot of our time. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Well, I'm not going to take up because we could speak for hours. So we're going to, for today, we are keeping it short. I know, guys, it's Love less it. than an hour, but we are good. But don't worry, guys. Jessica is coming back because we are not done with the conversation. <laughs> so Jessica will be coming uh, next month, uh, sometime next month for episode number three. As I said, we're going to get Jessica every month to talk to us about all of this, because I think there's an education to do about it. And if the, uh, people need to reach out to you, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, LinkedIn is really the best way. Um, or uh, you can reach me at jessica at mudcity.io. Um, and I'm happy to jam on all things sales or life, you name it. Uh, I just love to talk to people. So I'd be happy to hear from anybody. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much. And we'll see you next month. Hey, thank <laughs> you. You're welcome. Bye. Universe Podcast.